All right, well, welcome back to Haggard's inaugural podcast, part two. I am Dr. Elizabeth James. And so today we're going to pick up where we left off and we're going to go into how the business has changed, discuss a little bit about building on that history of the practice. And let's start with how the business has changed in the last five years. So Dr. Fallon, do you want to kick us off? So the last five years, Liz, I would say, you know, it's become obvious to us as equine practitioners and, and Rhonda can fill in the gaps for me. But looking at the statistics, you'll hear quoted time and time again that less than 1% of the graduating classes want to go into equine specific practice. And of that 1%, over the five-year span from when they graduate, over 50% of them decide to go either out of practice or out of equine practice or go to small animal, whatever they might choose. So there's a large amount of attrition from a very small pool of equine practitioners that are being graduated each year. Additionally, you have on the other side, the number of equine practitioners that are starting to retire or they're transitioning out of the profession for whatever reason. We have more practitioners that are leaving the profession maybe not all for bad reasons, but just they're, they're retiring or whatever, the attrition rate is higher than a replacement rate. So that is one concern. I think there are ways that we've touched on earlier about how the practice has evolved uh, as far as implementing new practices, new techniques, new elements of the science and furthering that along. I think we're also looking to, and with this podcast to reach out as another part of it, to see how can we make this profession more appealing and let people know about what a wonderful trip that that Rhonda and I have had, and as I shared with you that my father had in his career, that there are ways that we can change the way in which we engage young people that maybe have an interest in this or maybe never knew they would be interested in equine practice. Like Rhonda came for one year and she's 29 years still here. She knew she wanted to work with horses, but didn't really know where that road might take her. You know, we want to expose it and open the doors up and say, there are ways in which we can be nimble as a large group practice that we can support one another, whether it's on call, off call, or just a broad wealth of experience and institutional knowledge that you have here with your colleagues that you can fall upon at any time. It's exciting. It's an exciting career. And there's a lot of different areas that you can pursue. But I think we as a practice are also trying to understand better within the last five years what the needs are and the concerns are for the new graduates. As far as you often hear about life-work balance, what creates that life-work balance to keep you in the profession First off, maybe make you choose the profession of equine medicine, and then what's going to keep you here for the long haul? And Rhonda, I don't know if you have anything you add to that. As equine veterinarians, we're working so hard, and we were taking care of the horses and working those long hours that we kind of lost. You can't do both. You can't contribute to the community and recruit and um, do those things when you're working so many hours. There's just not enough of you to go around. And I think in the last five years, in fairness to the younger grads at the practice, they've showed us, like, they've yanked the lip chain a little bit and said, hey, pay attention here. We need to make a change. And I think there's lots and lots of exciting changes that we're making, and I, I feel good about it. Talk me through a little bit the history of Haggard's in working with young interns of all the different levels. So from any given year, we take 
when I first started, we were saying the numbers have increased a lot. There were two interns, like one in-house and one I was field, and we kind of swapped things out. I know. <laughs> Your eyes just went bing. There was two of us, and now I think there's 25, 30, any given year, depending on the year and the needs and the number of veterinarians. The number has just crescendoed every year. It keeps going up and up. So... Um, I personally think it's the best in the world as far as an internship goes. I think it's a hard internship, and I think um, you have to commit to it and want to do it, but you will see more horses and more cases and learn more in that year than anywhere else. So there's field internships, medicine internships, and surgery internships. We actually this year for the first time have a sport horse opso internship that she kind of floats back and forth between those two specialties, so hopefully that will grow with time. Um, when they first come for the first month, they're kind of getting their feet on the ground. We help them stock their truck. We show them around. They ride with us. They meet the farm managers and the owners. They um, learn the roads, <laughs> learn where the farms <laughs> are, learn where, where not to drive on the grass. They learn all the little idiosyncrasies <laughs> of the farms. And we start out that first month. They're not on their own yet. They're not on call. They're just kind of meeting everybody and doing some calls, farm calls with other doctors and doing some emergency work with other doctors. Um, that first month is very, it's very gentle. There's um, a lecture series that they get, a rounds series that they get, talking about all ty- kinds of different cases. There's a journal club. So the first um, six months is all those lectures on every topic you'd ever want. And if there's one you don't see on there, you just say, can we do this? And then it's done. There's so many different resources here of people to learn from. So we try and do that. There's some labs, how to take sales radiographs, how to ultrasound things, how to do anything. There's several different labs, and all that's done in the fall. And then sometime, usually around September sales, they are released to do prime, what we call primary duty. So they're released to go to farm calls on their own, do whatever, and just know that their cell phone can call any one of us 24 hours a day, period. Like, and if you, if you have a question from... I can't find a place to eat lunch to, <laughs> I don't know what to do with this case, that there's someone there. And I think that's the beauty of, the, of Haggard's. I still, after 29 years, will call, call a friend in the middle of the night and just say, I'm just not happy with this. What else can I do? And help you think through it. So that's certainly encouraged during the internship. And then during the spring, um, the, in, the field interns will palpate behind different doctors to learn their palpating skills. If you leave here and can't palpate a mare and get her booked, it's on you because there are so many mares that you can palpate. The booking process is a whole science in itself to get um, mares into busy stallions. It's all live cover in the thoroughbreds. So that's a learning, a big learning curve, I think, for some people. Um, And then we have the breeding sheds. The interns and younger associates usually cover the breeding sheds, which, as you know, are three times a, a day come hell or high water. So um, they help cover those, and there's a schedule as to where they do and help make sure that that happens safely. And what would you describe the relationship? Because I know, you know, small classes, a small group of interns, you know, that just the relationship amongst them, what does that end up being like year to year? Different groups are different. They, I think the past few years, those groups have been very, very strong, and they still keep in touch. We had last year's groups, half of them stayed and half of them went to other practices and that they still stay strong and still see each other pretty regular. So I think they do develop very strong relationships for sure. Just going through that experience oh, yeah. together. Yeah, because it's all day every day and you're, you're there. <laughs> you're there and you're calling each other and you're asking lots of questions. So it is. 
And, and surviving Kentucky winter. Yes, and surviving Kentucky winter. To then get the benefit of Kentucky springs. So, <laughs> Dr. Fallon, I'm going to come to you on this one a little bit. Can you describe for me a day in the life of a vet, equine veterinarian here at Haggard? There is a lot of seasonality to what we do, which actually is another aspect of why it's a wonderful profession. Every day is a little bit different. And when I say seasonality, at least for what I do versus what Rhonda does, you know, in particular, my busiest time of year is really February until the first part of June. And why is that? I primarily work with the neonates, you know, the mares that are foaling, postpartum problems with the mares, uh, then trying to get the mares back in foal, as Rhonda alluded to, to, you know, booking these mares to these stallions uh, for live cover. You know, the, as, as the the art and the science have evolved from, you know, the advent of the ultrasound in the early 80s and to where we can diagnose pregnancies earlier and earlier. We've gotten really, really good at what we do as far as equine veterinarians and the farm managers who are incredible with their wealth of knowledge and experience and management of these, of these horses to be able to get them to the breeding shed at the right time, to where you're booking them, you know, five to seven days out. And by and large, you'll pretty much stick to your time frame that you pick. So with that, what do I mean? Well, February to June, primarily getting the foals out alive, keeping them healthy, keeping those those mothers healthy, you know, in those initial few days post-foaling, and then getting them in shape if they're in good enough shape to be presented to the stallion that season. We're looking to, to breed them back, hopefully, around 30 days post-folding. Then you transition into the summer months, and things get a little bit lighter. You know, those days during the breeding season, especially March, April, and May, there are some very long days. There's some very long nights where you'll, you know, the alarm clock goes off at 4 or 4.30 in the morning, and then you're working until, you know, from 5, 5.30 until 6, 7, 8 o'clock at night. We're blessed with good support staff, but it's it's definitely there's a beginning and an end, but sometimes in the midst of it, you're wondering when the end's coming, if it's a light at the end of the tunnel or another train coming through. But it it is rewarding. It's exciting. Everybody's very tired, but they're also enjoying what they do. June, July, August, things become a little bit more civilized for me as far as the work schedule. It transitions more into looking at confirmations for foals, doing more herd health type examinations, doing a little bit of sales work for you know, our first yearling sales in July. The big sale comes in September. We'll start to x-ray three weeks prior to the date of the sale of the horse. That all begins in earnest the last week of July. And that's when everybody's really scrambling to try to get these close to 4,500 horses ready for the, for the auction. So that's a different part of the season. Then you have another downtime in October, a few little yearling sales, but then we get into the breeding stock sale. We have kind of a perfect storm here because we have the Breeders' Cup here right before um, the Keeneland November sale, which is very exciting. So you'll have a lot of clients in town and they want to see their horses. Uh, you'll have mares and weanlings that you're trying to get ready for the sale and also racing prospects that'll be offered for, for sale. So I'm saying sale, sale, sale. Well, it dovetails in with the racing season, which we're also involved with. Um, so there's 
a whole lot going on. And then you've got across the street at the horse park a massive slate of horse shows that the practice is involved with, too. So I do a little bit of that, not much, just trying to fill in the gaps for where we might have uh, might need some help just to have a veterinarian on ground. But uh, that's more what Rhonda does, a lot more of the sport horse and performance horse in that respect, along with the sales work. But I hope I answered your question as far as a day in the life. It's, in other words, it's not going to a cubicle and punching in and clocking out. Every day is a little bit different. I really like what you talked about, and I think that's one of the neat things about your internship being a year long, because I think if you just came for a part of it, you wouldn't see. So if you only came in the busy time, you wouldn't see all the times that are less busy and you're doing other things and you're not just in repro. I think if you only came you know, during the sales or something, you wouldn't you know, see it through a season. So I think that one of the neat things that you talked about in that is the seasonality and that a day, there's consistency in the seasons, but that throughout the year, it ebbs and flows. Um, so, Dr. Rothgaber, now I want to come to you. What about a day in the life for you? To me, the, the biggest difference is um, I don't do any reproduction work, so I don't have that super busy season in the spring, but I do a lot of full work then. Um, I also do a lot of show horses, so a lot of the big show horses go to Florida. So when they get back, like, April, I get super busy with not only mares and foals, um, but also the show horses that come back. They'll leave again in November, so kind of wave goodbye and take a little bit of a breather. November, probably December, January are my slowest months. Um, But the typical day is a very early start, and this time of year I do a lot of yearling work. My two favorite things to do are imaging and acupuncture, and um, I've kind of limited my practice to those two things, which has made it easy. As Luke said earlier, my husband manages a farm, so I do the emergencies and the foals there and have done for since as long as I've been here. So those mares are kind of like family now, and I follow them and love them. And so, um, yeah, it's a great, great time. Let's get a little bit more specific. The horsemanship that's here is high level. As a veterinarian, can you talk a little bit about the horse owners that you get to work with? The clientele is second to none, for sure. The education that they have, and especially when I first started, that was a little intimidating, but so welcoming. Like those Farm managers have seen more foldings than I have, and they've delivered more dystocias than I have. And they would, all of them are just so helpful and want you to learn and, and not, you, you just have to be, embrace it a little bit in the beginning because you're supposed to be the one they're paying to come out and then they're helping you. Um, but they, they're very, very knowledgeable and that definitely makes the job a lot easier. And also the diversity. I mean, it's such a cosmopolitan place, Lexington, it attracts horse people from all over. What they have seen in their body of knowledge uh, for working with horses is incredible. You know, if you can just stop and listen to what they have to say or show you, there's so many sort of intangibles that you don't learn in the classroom as far as horsemanship, but also understanding the animal, but also historically with what they have been involved with as far as, as I touched on earlier, advancements within the, the art and science of of equine medicine, we couldn't do it without the farm managers. You know, they're, they're amazing. And they are intimidating when you first are starting out. They still are, even though I've been doing it for 26 years. They can be intimidating. You know, they have their good days and their bad days. But they are, by and large, I would almost say 100% of the time, you've got a group of individuals that love what they do. They've gotten to the level of, of running these large 
operations, that they see the value in teaching and embracing young people, and whether it's a young veterinarian or a new hire on the farm, if they show that they've got the sort of determination and the, the fortitude to stick with it, if you just show up, as people often say, that's 95% of it, and the, you know, the rest will come. So the farm managers are extraordinary. Let's talk about students wanting to get an internship here, wanting to come. Obviously, um, it's highly competitive. You are a well-known practice worldwide. What advice would you give to students to make themselves marketable in getting an internship and opportunity here? And also, what advice would you give to have them be successful? Right now, I think the first step is not being afraid to do it. If you've always wanted to be an equine practitioner, you touched on my daughter. My daughter is leaning towards doing equine practice. And the discouragement that she gets is gut-wrenching. It's gut-wrenching to, to listen to what people tell her. So I, um, I think the first step is just committing to wanting to do it and, and trying it. Coming to visit, I'd say, you just really need to see it. And COVID really hurt us. You know, we're trying to post-COVIDize all of the externs that visit, but we weren't allowed visitors for a long time. And so that really, really hurt us. Because once, like I said, when you get that wow factor and you come here and you see all the action and all the different ways that you can go here, it's, um, it's not for everybody, but it's certainly eye-opening. And if you love horses, I, you can't not love it here. So I think coming to see it is a big part of it. Making them able to get the internship is just when they come, you know, showing their communication skills. It's a big place. You've got to be able to communicate well, not just with us, but with the farm managers who are scary and you know all the all the people in the industry and and again just embracing that I think would be my number one tip pretty well nailed it Rhonda to be honest with you you know I think just a willingness to at least try and expose yourself to this experience I think Rhonda to her credit has helped it evolve in large part to where it is today but it takes a lot of effort to construct a very formal program, which as we've had for many years, with a very formal, robust syllabus so that the learning really begins when they come here. They don't just get hired to become glorified technicians. And not to demean what a technician does, but you'll hear a lot of veterinary interns that go into internships and all they do is give vaccines and you know clean up the OR. That's not what happens here. You got to do the routine things really well and build on that and learn more complex tax, tasks. And I think that the interns are given that opportunity with the, the syllabus to do it in a very constructive and organized fashion, but also with a lot of support. Yeah, that, and the support is so key like to their success. Um, let's talk a little bit about the overall job market. And you kind of touched on COVID. So how has that affected and where is the current job market for equine veterinarians? Dr. Beth Gaber, I'll start with you. Um, I think the last time I looked on AAP's website, there were over almost 400 job listings. There's lots and lots of jobs available, equine jobs available. I think people are struggling to find equine veterinarians. Again, as Luke alluded to, only 1% are going into equine practice. I think less than 10 years ago, so that was 4%. So if you put that into perspective, that's a huge decrease. And the number of people leaving equine practice has increased. So I think 
we've known a we've known there's been a decline for a few years. I just think now we're really putting the spurs on and gearing it up because it's not sustainable the way it is now at all. And we have started a retention and a recruitment task force to try and address those, to try and get the students to see that it is a great job, it can be a great job, and to see all the different opportunities and all the different ways you can do it. You don't have to be the traditional work eight days a week, 25 hours a day, equine vet. There's so many different options that you can choose and trying to come up with ways to help the veterinarians that are here want to stay in practice. It's hard to hear it all the time. It's hard to hear how horrible lives equine veterinarians have because I have a great life and I love it here. And Haggard's has been so good to me. So it's the least I can do for veterinary medicine to just tell tell these stories to tell that story and dr found i want to talk to you a little bit about that especially when you touch on the work-life balance do you think and this is just an outsider's question that as a large veterinarian practice it's easier to balance that because it isn't all on one person like do you think that there's something to that liz i think so i think as rhonda said you know in the middle of the night when she's got an emergency there's always the ability to call a friend now if you're a solo practitioner you know you hear a lot of them say Gosh, you know, I never realized just all the benefit there was to being a part of a, of a larger group practice. And what is that? You know, there are people that can cover your on-call. There's the ability to, to call upon the resources such as, you know, your billing. So many veterinarians have to go home as a solo practitioner, and then they have to start doing the billing. Or hopefully, or maybe they have a spouse or a significant other that does the billing for them, or they have to outsource that. That is one of the benefits of being a part of a large group practice is a lot of that support work is done for you. And I think that's such an important thing, especially when you're starting out. I mean, to try and be a business manager on top of being a veterinarian, those are two very different roles. And I think that's one of the neat things about a practice like this is that you have, you know, media people, you have specialty people in different areas and you can focus on what you got into it for, which is the equine medicine and and getting out and seeing the horses and doing your job and not all the other stuff that you didn't get into it for. Two last questions for you guys. And the first one, Dr. Rathgaber, I'll come back over to you. Um, What about this business puts the biggest smile on your face? What do you love the most about being an equine veterinarian? The foals, the babies. And I'm going to be specific. what, What about them? Like, what is it? The foals, when they come out, they just have so much ahead of them. And to follow them through their yearling year, through their sicknesses, you know, through through sicknesses and health, as we say, <laughs> you follow them through their whole little lives. And then they go and win the derby, or then they go and win a big race, or then they go and become a Grand Prix dressage horse. To me, that's my favorite part. I love it. That's awesome. I love that. What about you, Dr. Fallon? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to piggyback on what Rhonda said. Uh, you know, this, this weekend is a great case in point. Kind of came full circle with a, a foal from a homebred, from a client of mine just down the road from here that, you know, she was a beautiful individual as a baby. And we all decided, well, this is one that we probably ought to keep. And we had a certain trainer we wanted to go to as kind of an experiment to try something with him. And it all came full circle, wound up winning a incredible grade one stake this weekend and you know here this filly we decided to keep her decided to run her things kind of fall into place and you know by a miracle she winds up winning a big race coming into winter circle you've got clients that you work for that are friends i was fortunate to have my son there with me too that you just get taken up in this moment that you're you're working for people but you're also 
on this journey and the illusion that Rhonda gave was that you're almost kind of wedded to this animal and the trip that they take you on. And that's that's what brings it all to life for us is that we get to take care of them from the start of their life to the end. And it's so fun. That's incredible. Yeah. So I was there standing behind him and his group <laughs> of people. And I just have to tell you, I, I like quickly got my phone out because you would have thought that they won the, the Super Bowl or the Derby. <laughs> they were high-fiving people everywhere. They were running around the, the racetrack. It was 100 degrees there, and it was just, it was awesome. It was one of those moments that, like, the, the New York Racing Commission should put on their commercial because <laughs> it was great. We were jumping around like a it bunch of school great. kids. <laughs> <laughs> and to see his son there, like, you know, high-fiving everybody, it was just, it was an awesome moment. I love that, too, because it talks about you guys, you know, in the love of the horse. And then the love of the medicine, like those are two different unique sides of it. That meteoric high there on Saturday with this Philly winds and, you know, you've got dirt all over your blazer because you give her a big hug when she walks in the paddock and she's just cool as a cucumber and covered in mud. And you really do, you have a vested interest to make sure that they're okay. Uh, but it, it, it really is just that connection with the animal and, and the, the journey they'll take you on. My last question is, um, what do you do for fun outside of horses? Well, I like to, to fish and, and hunt, and those would be two of my biggest things. And, you know, reinvesting in the, in the land and the environment here, you know, for, you know, there's a lot of farms where we do a lot of ancillary sporting activities other than just raising horses or, or racing horses, but... Yeah, I do have outdoor activities I enjoy like that. And then with my family, you know, the hunting and the fishing, my wife likes to play a lot of tennis, and we've gotten into pickleball here lately, so that's the latest craze. My dad loves pickleball. He keeps trying to get me to play, and I'm like, I don't understand it. So (laughs) what about you, Dr. Rathgaber? Fun stuff outside of work. Um, Travel would probably be my number one answer. Since my kids have left, I've been riding a lot more but I know that's not outside of horses but doing some riding holidays and stuff like that so my mother always said my middle name was go so still holds (laughs) I love to go places I definitely think riding counts it it is not in medicine and it it's probably my most therapeutic thing that I do is the riding but you blended the two well together with your daughter here lately we went to Spain my daughter we went to Spain and rode horseback across Spain with uh, one of my very good friends and her daughter the four of us it was amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was fun. Well, I just want to um, thank you guys so much. I mean, there's so many stories behind the stories, so just so excited for where this podcast will lead. Um, just want to credit you guys for opening the doors, taking people behind the scenes of your career, your practice, um, and letting people see that because I'm so excited for the listeners, um, for what you guys have in store in upcoming episodes. I won't give that away, um, but just where this journey will take people. Thank you. Thank you, Liz. Thank you. Well, that wraps up today's episode, so let's raise a glass to a successful podcast and to the spirit of Haggard. Spirit of Haggard. <laughs>